All you that come to see my fatal end, unto my dying words I pray attend. Let my misfortunes now a warning be to everyone of high and low degree. Had I been kind and loving to my wife, I might have lived a long and happy life. But having run a loose, lascivious race, my days will end in shame and sad disgrace. My duty towards God I did neglect, therefore what mercy can I now expect? When I before the mighty judge appear, to answer for my sins committed here. In wicked pleasures I my days have spent, and never had the power to repent. Till now at last my dismal doom I see, the just reward of cruel villainy. Hi everyone and welcome back to Haunted History Chronicles. First of all, thank you for taking a listen to this episode. Before we begin, I just want to throw out a few ways you can get involved and help support the show. We have a Patreon page as well as an Amazon link, so hopefully if you're interested in supporting, you can find a way that best suits you. All of the links for those can either be found in the show notes or over on the website. Of course, just continuing to help spread the word of the show on social media, leaving reviews and sharing with friends and family is also a huge help. So thank you for all that you do. And now, let's get started by introducing today's podcast, or guest. History holds within its folds, a tapestry woven with tales of triumph tragedy and the human condition. And what better way to explore these narratives than through the haunting melodies of execution ballads. Today we embark on a journey across time, from the 16th century to the early 20th century, to uncover the remarkable phenomena of execution ballads. These ballads served as the newspapers of their time, bringing news of criminals' deeds and their ultimate fate to the masses through compelling songs. Imagine bustling streets, lively marketplaces, and bridges where street singers transform these stories into musical narratives, inviting listeners to engage with tales both chilling and compassionate. Sold by street singers, itinerant souls who brought these ballads to life through their heartful renditions. These street singers often lived hand to mouth driven by a genuine desire to share stories, entertain, and perhaps make a living along the way. Execution ballads, sold on cheap single-sheet broadsides and pamphlets, came alive through the power of music. These ballads, set to familiar tunes, held the ability to captivate anyone who heard them, turning listeners into participants in the storytelling. The melodies not only entertained, but also educated, spreading awareness of crime, punishment, and the human experiences behind them. 
sometimes graphically violent, often compassionate, and occasionally satirical. These ballads were a reflection of society's complex emotions, reminding us of our shared humanity. Joining us today is a distinguished guest, who has immersed herself in the world of execution ballads. Una McIlvenna, an honorary senior lecturer in English at the Australian National University, is a literary and cultural historian with a passion for the early modern and 19th century pan-European tradition of singing the news. Her expertise shines through her extensive research into execution ballads, exploring the depths of this unique art form. Una's monograph, Singing the News of Death, Execution Ballads in Europe 1500-1900, to published by Oxford University Press in 2022, unravels the intricate threads of execution ballads and their impact on societies across Europe. In addition to her research, she has launched executionballads.com, a website that preserves the echoes of the past by featuring recorded renditions of these ballads. This website serves as a portal to step back in time and listen to the same songs that once echoed through marketplaces and streets. Una's work has been acknowledged in academic journals and publications, including Past and Present, Renaissance Studies, Media History, and Huntingdon Library Quarterly. She is also a co-founder of the International Song Studies Network, fostering a community of scholars dedicated to exploring the diverse facets of song traditions. Through Una's insights, we're transported to an era where the boundaries between news, music, and emotion blurred, creating a rich tapestry of history that reverberates through time. Join us as we journey into the past, guided by the melodies of execution ballads, and unlock the stories of those whose lives were forever etched into the annals of history. Be prepared to be captivated, moved, and enlightened as we venture into the world of execution ballads with our guest Una. Let the melodies of the past carry us through a remarkable exploration of human experience and the power of song. Without further ado, let's embark on this enchanting journey and delve deep into the forgotten corners of history to uncover stories that resonate with us even today. Forbear your vile plotting, all you that design To escape God's vengeance, repent you in time Remember that princes his vicegerents are Enrolled in heaven, the chief of his care No whispers in secret, but what are revealed From God there is nothing that can be concealed. In vain are your plots when his mercy says nay. Tis yourselves you ensnare, you yourselves are the prey. Tis of Colben I sing, who once was of fame and good reputation, but now to his shame. Thou treason has sullied his nobler parts and brought him to ruin, though his just deserts. Twas popish infection to ruin the state that wrought his confusion and hastened his fate. Such desperate malice is price to betray, but in vain are men's plottings if heaven gainsay. 
Hi, Una. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. Thanks for having me. Do you want to just start by telling us a little bit about your background? Sure. Um, I came to academia late um, as a mature student and I um, did a PhD in uh, something and a very different kind of topic. It was about the court of Catherine de Medici in France in the 16th century. But what I was looking at were satirical attacks on the court. And at the very end of the PhD, just before I had to kind of final, finalize it, I realized there were songs everywhere and that I hadn't really talked about them enough. So when I was looking for my first job, there was one going that wanted someone to look at public execution. And I said, I'll do that. And I'll, I'll look at songs about public executions. And I had seen a handful of them, literally like about five, some in English and one or two in French. And I thought I could, I could, maybe there's a whole bunch and I'll write about that and I'll do several languages uh, to try and make this a comparative study. And I really, I got the job, but I didn't know if, you know, maybe the five ballads that I'd seen were all that there were. Um, and of course, what I discovered is that there are thousands all over Europe. This is a, an enormous, enduring phenomenon that goes on from the start of the printing press right into the 20th century. And there are execution ballads in every language um, that all look very similar, in fact. So for anybody that is not aware of what an execution ballad is. Do you want to just explain precisely what it is? Sure. So they are, you know, songs that tell the news of crimes that have happened and of their very public and usually quite graphic executions. They were one of the genres of, or I should say the categories of news that was delivered in song form. So it's really important to understand that in early modern Europe, uh, most people can't read. And so telling the news via song is a really effective way of allowing people to understand what's happening. So there are news songs about every topic you can imagine, politics, uh, military conflicts, natural disasters, you know, anything you can imagine. And so crime and punishment, just like today, is one of the main categories of news. So execution ballads are this huge subgenre of news singing. Um, they look really similar, even in all of these languages that I looked at. Uh, they are cheaply printed on very cheap paper. They're very they're printed. I mean, in their hundreds, if not their thousands, or even in some case, by the time you get to the 19th century, they're printing literally millions of sheets of songs uh, on a single song, and they have text. They're in most languages, there are some exceptions. In most languages, they're set to a familiar tune. So you already know that tune. So as soon as you've got the words, you can sing along, which of course helps with memorization. And therefore, you're more likely to kind of repeat the message in that song. And that's important because these songs are almost always, um, well, for a start, the, the guilty party, the condemned criminal is always guilty. No question. They are entirely repentant. They are uh, full of remorse. In fact, a lot of the songs are in the first person voice of the condemned criminal who sings to the sort of imagined spectators from the scaffold, you know, in the last moments of, of their life. And they sing uh, the tale of their descent into sin and crime. And they relate the, the crime usually, if it's like a murder, it's usually a very graphically described murder. 
And then they say, you know, learn from my mistakes. Don't do what I did. You don't want to end up like me. And the very last verse or couple of verses, they turn to God and they say, please, God, Jesus, please save my soul. Um, so it's this cry for mercy at the end. So that format you find all over Europe. Um, sometimes it's in the third person, but still that, that kind of format remains. They're really, really, um, there's a lot of continuity in this genre. And the idea is that these are, they exist to teach a lesson to you and to me, to ordinary people about how to avoid sin and crime and why it's so important because the condemned criminal is often presented as a very kind of ordinary person who has just fallen into a life of sin. And that can happen to any of us because, you know, we're all sinners, right? So the the songs are very didactic. They're very much about learn your lesson. And, um, you know, they're very conservative in their approach. Um, and so the the bad guy is getting his just desserts in the end. And I think that's why they're appealing. And I suppose, I mean, you referenced that the medium of song was was something that went to everybody, whether they could read or whether they couldn't. So it kind of crosses that barrier of difficulty that might come from poor literacy skills, you know, particularly at that time when obviously not everyone had ed- had access to education. But they're also catchy. So you've got something here that is easily picked up that can be heard, sung, passed on, you know, mm-hmm. something that is sung in the homes, on the street, by any age, by any person, any kind yep. of part of the class system. It kind of transcends all of those different things, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And um, for a lot of these songs, we still have those melodies. And they are, you know, for the really popular ones, you get people of every social class uh, singing them. So these aren't songs that are just for the the working class and they're, you know, the elite composers are setting courtly arrangements of these songs as well, these melodies. So the, the melodies are very promiscuous. They move around, they go from court to street from church to, um, you know, to secular, they are absolutely kind of universal. The really popular ones are. And so it means that that message, yes, is available to everyone. And, you know, because anyone who can hear can hear a ballad. Uh, so it's a really, really effective way of spreading a message. And it doesn't, you know, so it doesn't matter your gender, your education, uh, your social class, your age. Everyone can hear the message of a ballad, even if they can't see it. And so that's also really important that these are printed uh, songs, but they have a, a they can travel a journey much wider and longer than you know the the physical object. Um, but the physical object, even you know, people there's lots of evidence that people were pasting ballads up on the do- the walls and um, chimney breasts of their houses and their belongings. And so um, they. They look at them, they see them. So it's important to understand as well that um, depending on where you are, this varies um, geographically, but if you're in Britain, for example, Britain or Ireland, uh, your ballads come on, on a broadside, so on a single sheet, one side of a single sheet, and they usually have images, woodcuts um, that look you know, fairly basic, so they're, they're understandable to anyone. you know. And so people put those up as a sort of a decoration and you'll see them now in old paintings. Um, you'll see things pasted up on the walls. And, and that's how people learn. Sometimes a lot of the songs actually are literacy lessons, you know, the ABC of a good Christian. 
So people are singing them and learning their ABCs as they go. So this then was quite big business, wasn't it? You know, you've got um, this production line of generating these and producing them and then selling them. Do you want to just explain that process of, of what was involved from kind of beginning to end before it got on to the street and to the people consuming it? Yes. So the people really making the money out of ballads are not the composers, not the authors or the performers or sellers. It, they are the printers. The and printer and bookseller is a kind of a uh, often a, a the same business. So they uh, one of the reasons I think that the the ballads end up the way they are. They use a lot of very sensationalist language. They're very black and white. They, they're they're very much like tabloid journalism. The, the kinds of features that we would recognize from tabloid journalism. So really dramatic, very easy to understand. Um, you know, justice is black and white. There's no gray area. That sells, you know, that's, that appeals to the widest possible market. And so we also get um, songs that are probably misrepresentative of the actual crimes and the crime rates that are going on. Um, for example, murders by women are far more popular in ballads than murders by men, right? So they print off, they'll do a print run of these ballads, which are very cheap to, cheap to make. So printers are also printing all kinds of other books and things, but ballads are quick and easy. And so they can be really very topical. They can be produced very quickly upon uh, an event happening. Then you get uh, the sellers of them are street singers and what are known as chap men who, who are buying sort of cheap print and then traveling around um, the countryside, selling this cheap print along with a lot of other things. They'll buy the ballads wholesale. And then, um, you know, that's a bit of a, a, you know, a gamble financially for them. These are usually not well-off people. Uh, they buy the ballads wholesale and then have to sell them to make their money back. The, the street singer is uh, someone you find on every street corner in early modern Europe. And even, you know, I've got photographs of street singers in 19th and early 20th century Europe still. They are um, one of the many ambulant vendors of, that roam the marketplaces and busy streets, bridges, places like that, um, to try and draw a crowd to them, to listen, to say, come and buy my thing. So, you know, there's lots of people selling all kinds of vegetables and homeware products, but um, ballad sellers are in there among them always. That's why most of these ballads will open with a line that draws the crowd in. Come all ye maidens fair. You know, that kind of drawing in um, groups of girls, young Christian men, um, all good hard workers, that sort of thing. They always open with what's, a come, what's known as a come all ye uh, opening line. And so that draws the crowd in. And so if you know folk songs, a lot of folk songs will open with a line like that. And it, it comes from that uh, tradition of selling in the streets. So they draw a crowd around them and then sell it. People will listen, they will buy the song sheet or pamphlet that the song comes in and then take it home. We don't know as much about who exactly is buying them. That's the hardest kind of thing to find out. But in when we have pictorial depictions of street seller, singers, uh, they do have a crowd around them, usually not terribly well dressed. You know, we're not your, you know, not rich people usually, but you get a crowd always in the street and people are very, very used to hearing things being sung in the street. And they'll often be, um, we have accounts of people kind of trying to decide which singer to listen to yeah, because there are, you know, so many around. 
I think for most people, they they can't kind of understand why there might be this interest and this intrigue in this area. But, you know, we have to um, remember that at the time when public execution was something that took place, it would draw huge crowds. There would be people coming to watch, to mm-hmm. to see this event, and it was seen as an event. And mm-hmm. so, you know, that scene that you just painted of um, people around the, the singer is something that I can imagine and I can really picture. And, and um, the fact that they might have their favorite makes sense because you know it's it's kind of the equiv- equivalent of us today isn't it we have our favorite newspapers that we might consume or our favorite magazines or our favorite journalist or writer or author singer it's exactly the same thing you go to the person for whom mm-hmm. you enjoy listening to you enjoy the story that they're sharing and if if their whole purpose is to draw you in and to tell this tale to sing this tale this account you know you're going to want to consume that information from the person that captures your attention that ma- you know manages to draw you in in that fashion absolutely and uh you do get a lot of elite commenter uh, commentators in the early modern period who are uh, scathing of street singers they say oh these terrible singers screeching caterwauling in the street etc but actually we have to look beyond that sort of snobbery they still know all the tunes, you know, um, and and actually some of the singers are very talented. So you do get some what you might call like celebrity singers in the 18th and 19th century that um, people are, you know, they know what to expect. They know where they are. They're always in the same place. Um, street singers also will rely very often on some kind of disability to, you know, they'll be blind or they'll be a cripple. Um, and that's one way of kind of garnering sympathy from your audience uh but yeah the 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 idea of stopping um to watch a spectacle is of course as well something from the early modern period because of course we have no recording and playback devices until the 20th century so if you want to experience music of any kind you need to either physically do it yourself or be in the physical presence of someone else doing it there's no way to, you know, there's no radio, there's no uh, record player, anything like that. So the idea that you're, everything in the early modern period is very much conducted in public for the community and people are constantly congregating in open places to listen, watch, observe, um, be part of something. And executions, of course, are absolutely a, a, a really extreme example of that. And by the time you get to the 19th century, you're talking about literally tens of thousands of people gathering in London, for example, to the point where there are regularly um, people getting trampled, uh, crowds getting crushed. Uh, it becomes a, a kind of a dangerous thing. There are so many people going. We, in fact, have evidence, uh, a coroner's report from one execution in 19th century London where I think 30 or 40 people died. And so the coroner's report uh, goes through in detail each person and why they were there and who they were. And what you find out is like a lot of apprentices, a lot of young men are going out of curiosity. And they all ask their masters and mistresses if they're allowed to go. And every single time the master and mistress says, no, you can't because it's too dangerous. Um, so they're not, you know, you can, they don't say to them, you can't go because you shouldn't be watching people being executed. That's not a problem. They say, no, 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 it's dangerous because of the crowds. So yeah, being a 
part of a communal event is something that's very, very central to early modern and, and still in 19th century Europe. Um, even, in fact, when literacy rates really go up in the 19th century, you still get people singing songs, even though they can read newspapers. Uh, they can get the news from other places, but they still want to sing and to listen to people sing about um, important news events. And obviously we we have records of these ballads that have survived. Um, what was that process of saving them, of, of, of keeping them? Because obviously we have a record of some of them, however many of them we will never know. Um, but what was that process of saving them and keeping them in terms of um, preserving them? Well, we get lucky, I think. Certain guys recognised the value of these things historically because they are ephemeral. Like I said, they're printed on cheap paper and people are just throwing them away the way we do with junk mail that we get in our post box. They're throwing them away or they're literally using them as toilet paper. <laughs> um, so the ones that survive, it's just a piece of luck, really. We get um, certain collectors that we know. So Samuel Pepys, uh, the guy that wrote the diary for you know the Great Fire of London, he luckily is one of those collectors. Um, but we have a few of them in various countries who kind of just saved them. Nowadays, um, we t they tend to be in big collections in big libraries. And luckily, various digitization projects have happened in the last 20 years or so. Uh, the first one was the Bodleian Library uh, started digitizing their collection, which are uh, mostly of Pepys's uh, own collection. And those same sorts of digitization projects have happened in various for various languages. So we're now able to see these things in high resolution. Um, some projects have transcriptions of the, of the songs. So really they're available uh, even to someone like me who's in Melbourne that I can you know, get on my computer and see them. And, and, and luckily the various um, projects in different languages, I can compare what, you know, what we find from and the differences and the, the similarities that we find from one language to another. Again, I suppose it makes sense that need to to keep them almost as a record when we consider just how newsworthy some of these events were, the individuals, the fact that this was something that was used for all kinds of news. If there was something very political, very kind of um, celebratory or something very um, ominous, something that was really drawing everybody in, people would want to keep that, to preserve that, to have that memory of it in the same way that we keep memories like photographs. You know, here you've got something that preserved that moment of time and that feeling. And I, and I think that's something that, you know, is, is very evident with this singing and with execution ballads in particular is this kind of relationship with feeling, with emotion, how it makes you feel. And I suppose that's very much intentional given the structure of the, the ballad itself which is to make you reflect on you yourself and how to be a good Christian so that you yourself don't end up where this person is in this position so you know the whole point is to make you feel emotion listening to the song so that you conduct a better life so again it kind of makes sense that people would want to have these 
memories kept possibly for that reason to reflect to remember that particular moment and that person or that event that it's tied to yes i mean there are events like you know uh, the french revolution or in england you have the popish plot in the 17th century where you know a whole bunch of people are executed and those are extremely high profile news events and so it makes sense that people are gathering up ballads around that event but for us what's even kind of more valuable in a way is that sometimes for lesser known things the ballad can be the only record we have of say a murder in the 16th century for which there is no crime report there's no archival document that if we didn't have the ballad we wouldn't know about it and so for me they're, they're valuable in that way as well as the sole record of maybe less high profile events uh, with the more high profile ones something like the execution of um, Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette you have a lot of ballads, obviously, um, and the way they uh, can be compared is really interesting. The way that, you know, I mean, I've written about the way that the differences between the ballads about Louis and the ones about Marie Antoinette, they're much more sympathetic to him, whereas they absolutely eviscerate her. Uh, she's the, she would call her every name in the book. Um, so they're a fascinating source to compare against prose accounts of, of those kind of high profile events, but um, we get them across all kinds of things, even ones that maybe no one else remembers. Well, I think you've got something here that truly does reflect every corner of society and mm. and religion, gender. I mean, it, it literally covers everything. And so I think it enables you to really evaluate those differences, those, those subtle differences that might be there, all the very obvious differences. And to, again, see how it very much reflects all of society. And I was going to ask, you know, if you have any examples of ranges that kind of show that difference, to show how it was something that might be used to discuss, to share something from someone maybe in the upper classes all the way down through to mm. something, you know, an event, a murder from someone who is just the common person um, mm. in the working classes. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, um, the nobility, when they are executed, have a very, very different treatment to uh, ordinary kind of criminals. Uh, it's important to understand, of course, when we talk about um, representation and reception and things like that, that uh, we don't generally know who has composed these um, uh, ballads. They're, you know, the most common author of them is, you know, good old anonymous. When we do know the authorship, the, the, there it's an incredibly broad range of professions that these people also have. They are, you know, pub owners. They are shoemakers. They are sometimes clergy. You know, and I think the fact that they are the ballads are conservative in nature doesn't necessarily reflect, uh, you know, that the, the the crown is putting these out or that the clergy are responsible. Um, I think the conservative uh, viewpoint in them is because that's the best-selling kind of thing. That's what people want to see. But um, in terms of yeah, different presentations of uh, victims, or you know, I shouldn't say victims, uh, condemned criminals, let's say, um, a, a noble person is most likely being executed for treason. So you've got someone, we've got ones like Sir Walter Raleigh, uh, the Earl of Essex. These are people being executed in uh, Tudor times, Elizabethan and Jacobean. Um, times, so Tudor and Stuart. It, 
It's very hard when you execute a, a military hero like Raleigh and Essex uh, to, you have to not call into question royal justice, right? You can't question the monarch's decision to execute this guy, but everybody loves him. So how do you do that? And they walk a very fine, delicate line between um, this guy is the greatest hero that ever lived, but he deserved to die. Um, so they, they really do a very interesting kind of tightrope walk, those songs. Um, on the other hand, you get the other kind of traitors in that period who are religious, uh, people who are heretics. So under Elizabeth, you get people executed. Well, under Mary, they would have been executed for heresy. Uh, but Elizabeth is a bit savvy and she executes them for treason. She says, oh, well, you know, um, these bad Catholics, you know, it's nothing to do with them being Catholic. The idea is that what they wanted to do was, you know, assassinate the queen or overthrow the monarchy. And so they're executed like traitors. But the ballads about them are vitriolic, polemic in their hatred of these, you know, polluters of the body politic is really how they're treated. So um, you get, there's a couple of priests, for example, who are executed under Elizabeth, Catholic priests. So they get dragged to the execution. Uh, the drawing is a very important part of the, um, the entire ritual. And that is being taken from the prison to the execution site. So they're drawn to the um, execution site on a hurdle, which is this sort of thinly woven mat. Um, and they're dragged behind, like on the ground behind horses who are, you know, defecating on them as they walk. And then they get to the execution site. They are hanged until they're nearly dead. And then they're taken down, beheaded, eviscerated, and their body cut into four parts. So it's a, it's a particularly gruesome end. Now that doesn't happen to Raleigh and Essex. They just get beheaded with a sword. Oh no, sorry, not they get beheaded with a sword, they get beheaded with an axe in Britain. On the continent, they would get a sword. Um, so it's a much nicer way to go. <laughs> a much more honorable way to go. And so the, the ballads reflect those, those two differences. You know, they are, uh, the ones about Raleigh and Essex and guys like that are, talk a lot about honor and the shame of this execution. But the, the, the other kinds of traitors, the rebels, uh, the heretics, they are, um, no one is gonna miss them. And we're thrilled really that they're dead. Uh, so a very, very different kind of treatment depending on who they are, the identity of the, of the condemned. I suppose it reflects public perception. You don't want to put something out there to those that are consuming it that they're going to be angered by. So if these are the, if these are their heroes in some ways, they're the likable figures, the likable characters, it is that dance, isn't it, about what you say, not saying too much to anger those listening, consuming, because you want them to to buy this, you want them to take this in. I mean, it's very interesting because the, the, the kind of other, um, it's one of the exceptions to the, the standard model of execution ballad are martyr ballads that are written by supporters of the condemned. And these are um, usually uh, Protestants um, being executed uh, in Catholic countries um, and vice versa. You get some in, in, for, for Catholics in England, but um, these are ones that they don't question the justice again. They say, oh, you know, yes, he definitely was preaching this new faith. They fully admit to it because they're proud of it, but they support 
the condemned and they present the condemned as a model of courage on the scaffold at the gallows, they, uh, that run, that's a huge risk to take because just composing a song like that in the 16th and 17th century could be a death sentence. And in fact, you have the Anabaptists in, um, in Europe, a lot of them in, in the Dutch-speaking and German-speaking regions. Uh, it's a huge movement within the Protestant um, movement. Uh, they are persecuted by Catholics and Protestants alike, and they build almost an entire um, song culture based on songs about their brethren being executed in horrific ways. And in fact, the Anabaptists, become, you know, they, the ones that survive tend to flee to America and um, are the forerunners of the Amish today in, um, in places like Pennsylvania, who still sing those songs, those exact execution ballads about those early, um, their ancestors. And they have a whole kind of culture around it. That's their heritage. But just to be caught with one of those songs was enough for somebody back in the sort of late 16th and early 17th century to be executed. You just had to be, you know, be convicted of singing the song or knowing of the song because that identified you as the heretic. So it was a very dangerous kind of territory singing could be, you know, really controversial. Oh my gosh, I mean, can you just, I mean, you can't, can you? But you can, it's just... <laughs> It's not something that you imagine would happen, but it did. And it's just, like you said, it's that kind of danger, that kind of hidden element to it, that, um, yeah, that, that kind yes. of sense of you're walking that line, aren't you? Um, in terms yeah, of. And songs, you know, we find songs in the criminal archives and in the, you know, Inquisition archives and those kinds of things because songs were so, and even melodies. You know, someone would say, you were humming that melody, and you know that that's a melody of the wrong kind. And so just the melody alone, you can be humming. Uh, there's a famous line from a, a, a play where someone says he was whistling treason. And the guy says, what do you mean whistling treason? He said, well, you know, we know that that melody is, belongs to the wrong group of people. So there's, there's so much meaning simply in the tunes. Uh, and then, uh, you know, the, the lyrics go with it. So people are being arrested and persecuted constantly simply for the songs themselves. And I know that um, your website does kind of very much collect and collate these these different ballads. You know, as you mentioned at the very beginning, this was widespread in terms of geography. This is something that you see across Europe. And I suppose in, in, in cataloging some of that, um, you know, we've just been talking about how this very much plays into religion and politics and so on. Do you see commonalities? Do you see differences across geography and, and continent play out in these ballads? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, the, as I said, contrafactum, that is that setting of new words to familiar tunes, is standard practice uh, all over Europe, um, from Ireland up to Scandinavia um, and down to France. Where we don't find contrafactum being used for execution ballads, uh, although it is a practice that goes on in other songs, uh, is in Italian and in Spanish language ballads. And But I, what I worked out, because I looked at the Italian ballads very closely, and what I noticed after a while, because they don't have any tune indication, like so when you buy a ballad in Britain, for example, it will say at the top, to the tune of, and then they give you the name of the tune that you know. 
In Italian, they don't have that. So I spent years going, how do we, how do we, what did it sound like? How do people sing them? And then I discovered that I worked out that when I looked more closely, that there was a specific meter for the different songs. So some were in ottava rima, which is um, a specific rhyme scheme, a specific metrical form, which is used uh, was used at the time for singing epic tales of chivalry, which were very very popular at the time. So uh, Orlando Furioso. Uh, was sung in Ottawa and these sort of you know chronological telling of a, of a very long tale um, and some other execution ballads were set in uh, Terza Rima which is the, the metrical form used by Dante and Boccaccio you know Dante's Inferno uh, is about you know set in Terza they it is a, a rhyme scheme and a metrical form used for the nobility so in every single case of a Terza Rima song uh, this, the, the condemned was a noble man or woman who was presented completely differently than the condemned people in other songs in Ottawa. There they are, very sympathetic, you know, they admit to the crime, but you know, it's only very sort of very obliquely, very vaguely referenced. And really they're just so sad and so remorseful. And you, you know, you really have so much compassion for them. Um, very, very different to the songs in Ottawa. So, what seems to be, although there aren't, um, the, the melodies for those particular metrical forms uh, apparently depend on where you come from, where you grow up, in your region. Uh, we sing Ottawa in these with these melodies, da, 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 you know. Uh, but if you live in from come from another region of Italy, you sing it in a different way. So the metrical form carries meaning with it in the same way that melodies carry meaning in other countries. So, um, for example, if we're talking about contrafactum. I've got a song about an 18th century convicted murderer uh, in, in Paris and everybody hates him and he's horrifically executed. The ballad about him is set to the tune of what had been an earlier kind of folk hymn about Saint Genevieve. So a very sweet, nice song about this lovely saint. And then I tried to find the tune for that and then I found out that it actually come from a ballet opera that was composed for Louis XIV. So a whole century earlier than the execution ballad and for a very, very different kind of performance. And so it has three different um, associations at each point. And you, never, you can never say exactly what understanding, what associations people bring into each performance of a melody, but they definitely carry meaning with them. So when I say something like whistling treason, the idea that the melody carries as much meaning as the lyrics do, and we really have to study that. And that's something that I find could vary depending on where you were. But uh, contrafactum is very, very common um, all over. Um, we find it in, even in Central Europe, uh, there's a big project on Czech ballads. They use contrafactum there, up in Scandinavia, um, Britain, France, German, Dutch, all using that, that form. Before we head back to the podcast, if you haven't already visited the Haunted History Chronicles Patreon page, now is the perfect time to join, to listen and enjoy a multitude of additional podcasts, merchandise, mail and other written materials. It's a great way to support the podcast to continue to grow and put out additional content, to share guests and their stories, as well as helping the podcast to continue to be enjoyed. You can find the link in the episode description notes, as well as on the Haunted History Chronicles website. And remember, you can always help support guests in the podcast 
by coming and liking the social media pages and chatting over there. It's truly all very much appreciated. And now, let's head back to the podcast. Assist me some mournful muse While I a sad story relate Let all that these lines peruse Lament a poor maid's hard fate Who guiltless and innocent fell By the hands of a barbarous dame As fierce as a fury of hell, her sex is eternal shame. Her husband to Bristol went, his trade to advance at the fair. Whilst she was on mischief bent, such mischief she can't repair. For suspicion or clouding her mind, bred a tempest within her breast. Her soul, like a sea with rough wind, was ruffled and robbed of rest. All jealous she taxed her maid, and falsely did her accuse. With theft she did her upbraid, and shamefully did abuse. While the maid in her own defense, undaunted and boldly he stood, which made the fierce dame commence a tragedy full of blood. And you just mentioned something there, which kind of I think again is something we've touched upon. This idea that they bring with they these songs, these ballads, these melodies, they bring something to them. And I think one of them is this connection with emotion, with this interplay with feeling, and what it's it's trying to make you feel as you're listening, and how it's connecting mm-hmm. you to the to the person convicted and about to be sentenced to death. Do you want mm-hmm. to just explain that in a bit more detail? Because I think it's really important because it's it's then something that changes, doesn't it, depending on who's the narrator, which voice, which narrative it is that you are being expected to listen to, to be drawn into. So that kind of sense of emotion, that feeling that's being created becomes something a bit more specific then to the event, to that person, to um, the style um, of the narrator and what they're trying to get across. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I, it, we can never know what someone listening to uh, a song or even singing it themselves actually thought at the time, right? But we can be very clear about what people were encouraged to think, how they were encouraged to respond. And so some of them, it's very obvious. Um, I think the big difference, of course, is the difference between the first person voice and the third person. With the first person voice, If you're singing that song, you, for a moment, become the condemned criminal who's standing on the scaffold, looking at the noose or the axe or the flames. And in your final moments, you're singing to people about the terrible things you've done and how scared you are and all the terrible, you know, all those emotions 
that we can only imagine would be racing through someone in the moments, in their final moments of life, right? And I think that must be an incredible kind of emotion to experience. And I think today, the only equivalent is going on like a roller coaster where you think for a moment, oh my God, I'm going to die. You know, that really heightened emotion is something that we have to actively search out. But I think going to an execution and knowing that the person is standing in front of you is going to die in a moment. And that also, I mean, I think that what we really, really have to remember is that it, that also means that they'll either, if they are very repentant on the scaffold and they make a, a good performance of remorse, well, then God will, will save them. And so they will be with, you know, they will be with Jesus today. You know, it's like what Jesus says to the, the robbers either side of him uh, when he's up, when he's being crucified. And one of them is very good. And he says, you know, you will be with me on my right hand side today in heaven. And the other one is going to hell. You know, that's what you're watching when you watch an execution. If the person looks like they are hanging on to trying to hang on to life and trying to claim that they didn't do it, they'll go to, they'll go to their death with sin on their soul. You have to be repentant. And so people are watching for this performance. And what you want to see is total remorse because otherwise they're going to hell today. So that plays out in execution ballots. That's why they are this immaculate performance of utter repentance. That um, And you, you know, if you sing that, I mean, these songs are quite long and you can really start to build the emotion and the fear builds, you know, and the sort of rising panic towards the end of them. And those final verses where you, you know, cry out to God saying, please, Lord, have mercy on my soul. You can get really caught up in them. So um, they become a real performance of the final moments on the scaffold. The contrast, of course, is the third person voice where you don't necessarily get anything like that. Um, they can be a lot more, um, they can be a lot less compassionate for the condemned um, and much more, you know, reserved, you know, standing back and sort of just relaying events. Um, so I think that that is quite important. That first person voice is so important in terms of emotion. And what's interesting uh, I, is that I discovered that German language ballads are very, very rarely in the first person voice. So you get a very different kind of depiction of the criminal in those songs because of that refusal to use what in other languages is a very common device. Is there any difference between types of victims in, in the kind of the emotion that's, that's drawn in to the, the song, to the ballad? I divided the, my book into um, sort of kinds of crimes. Um, so I started in a, in, a, in a roughly chronological order. Um, so I started with the very earliest ones, which are about religion, heresy, people being executed for um, heresy and for witchcraft and sorcery. And I think those things are related. Yeah, they're connected. The fact that the Reformation is followed very quickly with enormous witch panics that go on all across Europe. You know, Europe is absolutely thrown into turmoil and someone is looking for scapegoats. And so they start to blame, they start to point the finger at other people. Uh, in the German lands, that leads to witch panics in which men, women and children are rounded up and denounced in their hundreds. We have executions of hundreds of people over the space of a few days. It's really terrifying. Um, 
So they're very different. You know, the songs like that are just, they're just accounts of, you know, scores of people. And they, they only have time to point out a few of them and what they did. Oh, here's this terrible, you know, they, they poisoned the crops and this one murdered babies and this one did this. So you don't really identify with those, except that you, you know, the songs encourage you to, you know, mothers and fathers, you know, hold your children close and make sure you raise them as good Christians is the only kind of message you can take away from it. Um, whereas then a bit later, we start to get murder uh, ballads, which are, you know, about homicide. They turn up, I was kind of surprised at how late in the day we start to see songs about people being executed for, for murder. What's different is um, you get wife versus husband murders, um, and they're very different. When wives murder, they are, um, uh, we get a, in fact, in Britain, you get a kind of a, a kind of a fad for wife murderers, uh, in the early 17th century. Um, you get this sort of rush of ballads about this and they are seen as, um, you know, her, they're very often, we, you know, when we have the historical evidence for them, these wives are often the victims of domestic abuse and they kill their husbands in self-defense. But this, the ballads never, ever tell you that. Um, the, the women are always guilty. They're scolds. They are, um, you know, they're not tolerant and they need to be quiet. And so they become, um, the, those ballads become a message about wifely submission. Whereas the husband, the husbands who murder, there tends to be a sort of a matrix of alcohol, a, a violent life already. There's a, there's a few songs about butchers who then murder their husband, mur murder their wives. So these are men who are already vulnerable to um to bad things and then the devil walks in and uh kind of takes advantage of that vulnerability and so they they you know go to their deaths i mean what's interesting is that men who murder other men are usually get off on manslaughter charges but men who murder their wives don't they they, they get executed It's an interesting thing to kind of look at and to see the differences between how they were used. And, you know, you were mentioning things like the persecution of witchcraft and this this epidemic that swept everywhere, really, across across Europe. And, you know, mm -hmm. you can see how songs, just like other things that they were doing at the time, almost become propaganda. You know, it's a way mm -hmm. of telling this story and it continuing it and it being spread very, very quickly like wildfire. Um, where you don't necessarily have to have a person attached to it. It is just something that becomes known, that is told, that everybody should be scared of, that everybody should be aware of, that you should be looking out for. And, you know, this is the, the power of song, the spoken word, the way that it does have that ability to cover huge distances of geography. Um, and again, people cover huge, huge varieties of different people to get across this message that people are wanting to push out there to to bring to the fore and to bring to people's attention. Yeah, I mean, um, another really interesting um, crime that is, again, very tied to a chronological moment is um, outlaw balladry. We get a whole genre in the sort of late 17th and 18th century of um, outlaw and bandits, and they become this, these, these romantic heroes. So you think about Dick Turpin, um, or um, in France, it's Cartouche and Mondrain. And these are guys that become, you know, Robin Hood 
is the subject of some of the oldest ballads we have in the English language. People love a story of a, of a guy who robs from the rich and gives to the poor. None of these outlaws did that. <laughs> but um, when they're executed, I found two models of ballads, one of which I call the realistic ballad and one which is the nostalgic model. The nostalgic one is the ones, those are the songs we're still singing today about those guys, where they're kind of fun and they're kind of, um, you know, swashbucklers and they, um, they rob from the rich and they give to the poor and the execution is not really talked about very much. On the other hand, you have realistic ballads, which are written, you know, I can trace them to be produced on the moment of the execution, like really shortly after. They use melodies that are used for other execution ballads, so they're very much in that vein, and they are excoriating about these terrible men who persecuted the whole countryside, you know, these gangsters that everyone is thrilled to see the end of. And it's really interesting that they are, I mean, you know, and, and in those realistic ones, the execution is described in great detail, you know. They haven't lasted in popular consciousness the way the nostalgic ones have. And I think that's really fascinating that we want to have this kind of romantic idea of what these guys did, even if it doesn't really match up with the reality, you know. And those are the ones that still today in every language, you know, if you start to sing one, the people who speak that language will be able to sing along because very often they've become like children's nursery rhymes. Um, and. And I think that that's fascinating. They've entered into a sort of oral, uh, historical kind of nostalgic tradition. And again, I think it's because it reflects that what the, the popular masses want, isn't it? Like you said, they want that nostalgic element. And so it becomes something that, like you said, almost creeps into the everyday experience, even today. You know, it's something that, that lasts, it, it, it endures. Yeah, it's a version of history that's mm. um, not necessarily accurate. <laughs> no. <laughs> so you kind of mentioned this, you know, this sense that you almost get these themes, these messages that come through. And I wonder if during your research, you've kind of ever explored and noticed ballads that reflect people's interest in the supernatural, because obviously this was something that very much was part of everybody's everyday experience, their belief in the supernatural, the unexplained, mm -hmm. um, that element of mysticism, superstition, you know, they had mm -hmm. so many things, didn't they? And, you know, you have to wonder if it creeps into even this aspect of, of life, the, the execution ballad. Well, of course, what's important to remember is that all of Europe is deeply religious, right? Um, and religion is a belief in the supernatural. If you're Christian, you believe that there are um, invisible deities who control what we do. So if you understand your universe in that, um, in that vein, the supernatural elements of ballads that we today might think, mm, that's, that makes it sound a bit dubious. So for example, the existence of witches, or indeed werewolves, or um, for example, a very common kind of trope is that you find when someone murders someone else, the spots of blood will not wash out of their skin, a bit like Lady Macbeth. For us, when we look at those ballads, we think, oh, well, that's not, obviously that bit was made up or that's not true. But for early modern people, those were all signs that God was making his, his will manifest in 
our day-to-day lives, God was constantly selling, sending us signs and signals that we need to repent, that the end is nigh, that you know bad things happen because God is angry with us. So floods, um, crimes, murders, um, witches, werewolves, all that kind of stuff, that is God telling us that we are sinners and we need to repent. Whereas good things, you know, a victory in a war, um, you know, uh, things happening in the sky, there's a lot of things like comets and things that they don't really understand. Well, that's obviously God giving us a very obvious signal that, you know, he's either mad with us or he, he's happy that we are being good Christians. So what's really important for us to, to do when we look at these ballads, as some, you know, someone like me who does not believe in anything supernatural, I believe that the, you know, nature is very much explainable, even if we don't know yet the answers. I have to not look at these ballads and think, well, that obviously makes it untrue. For, very, for a lot of their audience in the early modern period, it's those elements that make it true. That's the proof that you know it happened. And what's interesting is that a lot of the songs, I mean, most of the songs, the title of them is a new and true report on the shocking and unheard of incidents of whatever, you know, murders or whatever and that you know the justice that was served on the body of the of the criminal and so even the um they're, they're clearly aware that some of this stuff sounds a bit too much to be true werewolves for example so people are you know at this point you still have were, uh, wolves in the forests in europe so wolves are still a big deal so the idea that people could turn into wolves was not as far-fetched as it might seem to us today. Plus, people are still being convicted of being werewolves. People are being executed for being werewolves. So that doesn't make this the, the song untrue because they are songs about things that genuinely happened. Now, whether that person transformed into a werewolf is for us probably, you know, very obviously not true. But for its audience, it was. And that was God telling us, you know, this is a punishment for doing something bad as a society. Ballads like this we use to validate experiences, accounts. If there was a, if there was, you know, a particular example of a, a werewolf trial happening in a particular location, the song of that travelling was was evidence of this was something that does happen, and therefore be aware. Um, again, yep. so it becomes propaganda. It spreads. Yeah, and I mean, you know, when I've tried to triangulate my sources to, you know, find historical evidence for the songs, very often the songs are accurate. You know, they're they're telling the, the truth of, of as, as it was reported in the period. They're not changing facts or adding things. They are um, they're just as reliable as any prose account of the news events. So we we shouldn't assume that because it's a song, it somehow plays fast and loose with the truth in order to kind of be entertaining or whatever. It, they really are um, just as reliable as, as prose accounts. Oh, I completely agree. And I think in some ways, again, it reflects that local level history. You know, you get the, the geography, you get something very much relevant to a particular, re particular region, time frame. You know, it very much reflects the, the attitudes of the day, the interests of the day. I have a colleague in who works on Breton ballads, ballads in Brittany, and she was able to find loads and loads, like uh, scores of uh, variants of one song about a, a serving girl 
being murdered and her body being found on the street. And the songs only varied in terms of those specific location details. It's those tiny details about, you know, the name of the town or whatever. The further away you got from, you know, it, the thing is that she was able to find the 17th century record of that event, of that murder from, I think it was 1670. And three, 400 years later, people in 20th century Britain, France are still singing the exact facts of that song, of that event, the way it happened. And it's only the further away you got from this little village in which it actually happened, then the names of the, the village and the names of the, the people involved change a little. But what was extraordinary is that the song has kept the information, the key details of that story, absolutely accurate for centuries. Uh, so that that's when singing and that ability to listen and repeat um, means that it's actually a more efficient way of telling the news than simply printing it out on a sheet of paper. And you know, we mentioned you know how it does reflect societal opinion and. What's fascinating is it doesn't always reflect the societal opinion that you think it's going to. You know, for example, you look at the treatment of ballads with regards to infanticide and you would think that that would be something that would be considered completely heinous and horrendous. But yet there is empathy, there's sympathy that seems to be reflected in the lack of yeah. songs with regards to them, isn't there? Right. So in the what we call the oral tradition so these are songs that um, are not being you know printed you do get in certain countries france and scotland for example lots and lots of songs about infanticide that are very clearly not re referencing specific historical events they're just a general song about a poor girl and oh wasn't it terrible but when you realize that from the 16th uh, century onwards right up to the late 18th century that the infanticide legislation became ever more draconian all across Europe so uh, young women were being executed um, on flimsier and flimsier evidence um, you know and you would expect because we love songs about women murdering and women murdering babies well that's horrific so therefore you'd expect a concurrent simultaneous rise in the number of ballots um, along with that rise in numbers of executions, but you don't. You don't get songs about locatable, recognizable, identifiable girls being executed. There's so few, I couldn't believe it when I was doing this research, I thought, where are they? Why haven't I got more? And what we're finding in the most recent research that's being done across multiple different regions of Europe is that communities worked extremely hard to uh, mitigate the consequences of unplanned pregnancies, unmarried pregnancies. They worked with the, couple, the young couple, um, they did all kinds of things to try and, you know, make it better. Sometimes that involved infanticide, sometimes not, right? But they were actually really sympathetic because they understood that young women, uh, especially young poor women, were the most vulnerable to sexual assaults, sexual violence, um, there's no birth control, there's no other way of controlling this. And so they understood that and were really sympathetic. And so I don't think people wanted to sing about girls that had actually been executed. They had a lot of sympathy for them. And we've got, uh, you know, accounts of actual executions of these girls in which the crowd, it's a really difficult one to pull off for the executioner. 
because the crowd is not on his side the way they normally are. And so if he doesn't do it very smoothly and very quickly and carefully, the crowd you know, will you know, revolt and hurl things at him and try and save her. So yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting way in which the ballads are not created because they just won't sell, because people just don't want to sing them. It is a really interesting topic though. I mean, just where I live, in my um, kind of local area, um, I'm not too far away from Oxfordshire, and there is a really well-known case of precisely this, where a very young servant girl who had been taken advantage of by the master of the house became pregnant, and she lost that pregnancy midway through. And by reports of the, you know, the account, it was a stillbirth. And the master of the house basically took her to court for murder. And um, you had midwives, you had other women coming forward testifying to this was a young girl who'd been experiencing abdominal pain, that something was clearly wrong, um, mm. that she didn't seem to have any awareness of what was, was happening to her, that she was pregnant. And there were pamphlets being produced. There was huge support for this very young girl because she was young who seemed to be totally unaware of her condition, who had gone through this experience not knowing what was happening to her. So there was a, a real sense of public support, obviously with someone very wealthy, who was her master, with privilege, position, tied to the court. I'm sure you can imagine what the outcome was. Sadly, she was found mm. guilty and she was executed. In her case, though, the execution was botched. So, um, she revived and so therefore having been having been executed they couldn't execute her execute her a second time so she managed to kind of um evade that part of it by by it going wrong but i think it reflects very much precisely what we were just talking about this sense that sometimes public opinion was very much in support of these young girls who could find themselves in these positions and i think society the working class society very much reflected that maybe these were girls take, being taken advantage of, maybe it was a case of something had gone wrong, it wasn't always murder, it wasn't always the kind of the punishment that was being rendered on them by upon high. It could be something something different to that. And so I think I think support was there for them, you know. The scientific knowledge around um, uh, gestation and childbirth was was pretty primitive compared with what we have today and so you didn't even know if you were pregnant until the quickening mm -hmm. which is when the baby actually you can feel the baby kicking which it ha doesn't happen until about four months um, but what's important there about that specific story is um, any botched execution or anyone who revives that was also interpreted uh, in popular culture as a sign that God was you know trying to tell you this is an innocent person yeah um, and so God was stepping in at that point. And so that was, you know, if you were innocent, you could go to your execution confident in the knowledge that God would save you. But in fact, there's an even a very, very old song tradition around that in which a very similar story, a serving girl who, the, the, it's the, the daughter of the rich family who actually ends up pregnant, gives birth, murders the baby and blames it on her serving girl. The serving girl goes to, you know, who's innocent, goes to her death. But depending on where you hear the story, Mary, the Virgin Mother, or St. James, or some other, you know, kind of um, supernatural figure, holds her up on the, on the from the noose so that she doesn't strangle, so she survives, 
and stays there for like three days but doesn't die and that is proof you know that it was it was actually the the daughter of the you know she points the finger at the right person in the end so that's actually a very very old story it actually comes from the lives of the saints um you know the golden the golden legend which is like i don't know 12th century or something very very old and it's told again and again in stories and songs so people this is an ancient belief you know that these girls are you know probably innocent and you know we don't know the stillbirths are an enormous issue in this period you know that there's huge infant mortality and so it that's why the legislation around this is really um, outrageous uh, that just says if there's a dead baby you must have killed it you know so it's 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 a really fascinating incident of you know and why you know a kind of a crime that doesn't really end up in execution ballots the other even more obvious one are the crimes committed the most common crimes committed which are committed by young men between the ages of 16 and 45 they are crimes against property for which those men are hanged but because they are so common they're so ordinary nobody writes a song about them but in fact if you look at the stats it doesn't matter where you are or when those are the people who are going to be executed by far more than any other any other group but we don't have songs about them unfortunately not usually no they're not quite as um interesting are they they're a bit more mundane not at all <laughs> <laughs> and then when you know you get to the 19th century the only crime that is really features in execution ballads because it's the only crime or almost the only crime that gets the death sentence is murder and you start to see, when I looked at the search statistics, I looked at the numbers, it's really men murdering uh, women, uh, usually their wives or girlfriends, um, and they absolutely dominate. Um, and uh, the, the most fascinating thing I discovered when I kind of looked and crunched the numbers was that what stops execution ballots as a, as a trend, as, a, as a, um, a kind of genre, is the end of public executions. So in each country in Europe that, most countries in Europe that happened around 1860, 1870, give or take, you know, and then they move inside the prison walls and the only a, a limited group of people get in, invited to come and watch. And everywhere that that happened, immediately there's a drop off in the number of execution ballots. They just almost disappear overnight. The only ones that still get created are about really horrific crimes so the man doesn't just murder his wife he cuts her up and puts her pieces of her body in a suitcase or he rapes and murders a child or you know something really really heinous and those are the only ones left in other you know all the other places it just stops um the exception of course is france because france is still guillotining people in public until 1939 and <laughs> it's in fact so late so we're right in the second world war they are still rolling out a, gu a guillotine uh out, you know in in public that anyone can go and watch but what happens in 1939 that eugene weidman is a, a, a murderer who's getting executed and his someone manages to get video footage of it very grainy footage and that goes public and a week later public executions cease in france and exactly the same thing happens the execution ballads stop so i've got five ballads about eugene weidman and then I have no more. That's the last one. Doesn't that just show exactly what we've been saying, though, that this is very much tied up with 
public consumption, you know, and mm-hmm. eliminate the public, um, eliminate their ability to see this because it's no longer a public spectacle. And you yep. don't need you don't need the song anymore. You don't need the song to draw people in. There isn't that connection um, because this execution is being done behind closed doors. It's a really it's a really interesting sort of connection that it seems to be that there has to be some sort of public event for interest around it to happen, and so uh, it it yeah it achieves the aim that those who wanted to move private executions indoors had which was removing it from the site of the you know the the mob mm. who no longer understand the religious and spiritual significance of this event um they're 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 too low class to understand you know that's again such snobbery around this um that you know people like charles dickens are, are are one of the he's one of the guys arguing that you know this is a mob of of low class criminals them, themselves and they don't understand what they're here to see so we need to remove it from public view um, and and yeah and the songs just cease at the same time and you only have the records then of those that are kind of being talked about in the public arena so those crimes like you mentioned that mm-hmm. seem to be gossiped about because they are so heinous so extreme you know a, a, an extreme example of murder because of these extra details so these are the things that are still being sung about because of that the rest has kind of gone under the radar yeah it's fascinating gosh we could talk <laughs> about this all day and all night i think <laughs> i think any, anybody that though is interested should really take a look at um you know the examples that you've got on your website because it is an incredible array of different examples of this from different countries that very much highlight all the 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 things that we've been discussing and is a record of history and you know that it it tells us so much it tells us so much about what was being talked about what was happening politically what was happening in religion um things at local level people it speaks so much about the day-to-day lives i think of the common person all the way through to the person in court. And we don't have very many records that do that so completely. But I think this is one example where song is powerful in being able to convey that to us even today. Yeah, so the the website has ballads in English, French, German, Dutch and Italian and uh, across four centuries. And uh, we have some recordings uh, at the moment only ones in English uh, if you want the other languages that they're coming um, but hopefully you can get on there and listen to some uh, performances and enjoy it and um, learn a little bit about how we thought about crime and punishment. So what are you up to next? What are your next steps in terms of research, writing? Where are you going next with this? So I am actually, as I said, there are uh, songs about every topic under the sun. And so I'm actually hoping to do that project, um, looking at ballads about uh, other news categories. So politics and satire, uh, military battles and sieges, um, songs for soldiers as well, and then natural disasters and wonders. So things like uh, comets, but also conjoined twins. I mean, these are these were seen as monsters in the early modern period. People didn't understand why you'd have 
um, conjoined twins, for example. And so hopefully, you know, taking the same approach that I've taken to execution ballads, but really um, broadening it out to all kinds of news topics. Oh, that's fascinating. I can um, I can see this could be something as a project that you really could keep running with, uh, you know, <laughs> in, oh, yeah, and going everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I'll be on my deathbed and I'll still be, you know, doing research on ballads. Cool. And I, as I say to my students, you know, whatever topic you're researching in history, I guarantee you there's a ballad about it somewhere. But I suppose, doesn't it just reflect um, today, though, with different types of songs and genres and, you know, the millions of songs across the world that we have that literally touch upon every facet of life? I, you know, it's the same thing, isn't it? It's just people singing about their day to day lives, the news of the day. Yeah, although I don't think that we um, we use song uh, to tell us the news in the same way. Uh, we can the songs that are about t- news topics are often commentary mm. on them. We already know what has happened. Whereas I would argue for um, in certain cases for an early modern audience, the song could be the first thing they've heard about this event. Um, and so in that sense, um, I think we. we we have changed our approach, at least in the Western world, to song. It, it remains much more of an art form than it was then, whereas it, it, in the early modern period, we're looking at something that's news, entertainment, and moral lesson all wrapped up in one package. It's just fascinating. And like I said, you I think you've got plenty of material to keep going and going and going with it. And for anybody that's been interested you know, following on from this, you know, I'll make sure that all of your details are on the website, links to your books, links to your website, social media, so that people can find you, be signposted to you to hear these, read more, um, dive into this topic because it is so fascinating in a bit more detail. And yeah, thank you so much for for coming along to talk about it day, today because it is so intriguing. It's It's been fascinating to chat with you. Thank you so much, Michelle. It's been a pleasure. And I will say goodbye to everybody listening. Bye, everybody. Great God that sees all things that here are done, keeping thy court with thy celestial sun. Hear her complain that hath so sore offended. Forgive my fact before my life is ended. Ah, me the shame unto all womankind To harbour such a thought within my mind That now hath made me to the world a scorn And makes me curse the time that I was born I would to God my mother's hapless womb Before my birth had been my happy tomb Oh, would to God when first I did take breath That I had suffered any painful death If ever died a true repentant soul Then I am she whose deeds are black and foul Then take heed wise, be to your husband's kind And bear this lesson truly in your minds Let not your tongues or sways to reason's bounds Which in your rage your utmost rancor sounds 
A woman that is wise should seldom speak, unless discreetly she her words repeat. Oh, would that I had thought of this before, which now to think on makes my heart full sore. Then should I not have done this deed so foul? The witch hath stained my immortal soul. Tis not to die that thus dost cause me grief. I am more willing for to die than live. But tis for blood which mounteth to the skies, and to the Lord revenge, revenge it cries. My dearest husband, did I wound to death, and was the cause he lost his sweetest breath. But yet I trust in solace heaven doth dwell, and mine without God's mercy sings to hell. In London near to Smithfield did I dwell, and amongst my neighbours was beloved well, till that the devil wrought me this same spite, that all their loves are turned to hatred quite. John Wallen was my loving husband's name, which long hath lived in London in good fame. His trader Turner, as was known full well, my name and Wallen, doleful tale to tell. My husband having been about the town, and coming home, he on his bed lay down, to rest himself, which when I did espy, I fell to railing most outrageous lay. I called him rogue and slave and all to naught, repeating the worst language might be thought. Thou drunken knave, I said an hour and sot, thy mind is set on nothing but the pot. Sweetheart, he said, I pray thee hold thy tongue, and if thou dost not, I shall do thee wrong. At which straightway I grew in worse rage, that he by no means could my tongue assuage. He then arose and stroked me on the ear. I did at him begin to curse and swear. Then presently one of his tools I got and on his body gave a wicked stroke. Amongst his entrails I this chisel threw, whereas his call came out for which I rue. What hast thou done? I pray thee, look, quoth he. Thou hast thy wished for, thou hast killed me. When this was done, the neighbours they ran in, and to his bed they straight conveyed him, where he was dressed and lived till more next day, yet he forgave me and for me did pray. 
No sooner was his breath from body fled, but unto Newgate straightway they me led. Where I did lie until the sizes came, which was before I there three days was lame. Mother-in-law, forgive me, I you pray, for I have made your only child away. Even all you had, myself made husbandless. My life and all cause I do so transgress. He ne'er did wrong to any in his life, but he too much was wronged by his wife. Then wise be warned, example take by me. Heavens grant no more that such a one may be. My judgment then, it was pronounced plain, because my dearest husband I had slain. In burning flames of fire I should fry. Receive my soul, sweet Jesus, now I die.